0: The reading today comes from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husband and children, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hi again, New Hope. It's good to see all of you. As always, um, if you're new or if you're visiting, want to especially welcome you, Um, and uh, I hope you'll be able to stick around a little bit after the the service today so that uh, I would love to get to know you and meet you, and I'm sure lots of other people would too. Excuse me, one second. Thanks. Yeah, if you're able to stick around a little bit afterwards, that would be great to just shake your hand and and, and learn your name and and maybe connect. Um, If you have been around here for a while... You probably know that as a church, we normally spend time each Sunday teaching and studying the Bible. And the reason we do that is because we believe that in this book we find God's words. God's words put into writing and preserved for us. So on Sundays, what 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 we uh, most often do, what it often looks like, is we. We open up a book of the Bible or a particular section of the Bible, and we start at the beginning, and then section by section, as best as we can, with the help of God, I or someone else will stand up here and try to explain the meaning of those words and, 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 and in the context in which they appear, but also try to explain the relevance of those words for us in our context today. The goal is to see what this text meant to its original readers, who lived at the time when it was written. But also, we want to acknowledge the fact that these words are vital for us. How should we receive them? How should we apply them now? Because God's word, while it's rooted in a particular historical and cultural context in which it was written, it's still universally and eternally true. It's vital for us. We believe that, I'm convinced, New Hope, that the words of this Bible, the words of Scripture, have the power not only to inform us, but to transform us. They inform us, they tell us things we need to know, but they have the power to transform us, to turn us into the people that God wants us to be. So typically we move through a book section by section, chapter by chapter, so if you're present each Sunday, as I hope you are from Sunday to Sunday, my, my hope is that what happens is you're able to track through, you're able to track with the, the continuity of the messages from week to week as we go through the scriptures, while also I'm hoping that you can get a sense of the bigger picture of, of each book of the Bible and see what the, the main idea of the book is as a whole. So last Sunday we finished the first chapter of this letter to Titus, or so I thought we had finished it, but it turns out we haven't, because this week, it's kind of a crazy week, I wrote a a, a sermon on Titus 2, which I plan to preach to you, but very late this week, this has only happened a few times before in my life, but very late in the week, yesterday in fact, I realized that we really do need to go back to chapter one. I realized and I feel that the Lord is convicting me and urging me to to go back to chapter one and spend a little bit more time there and examine especially one idea in chapter one more carefully because I'm I'm convinced that this idea matters for for many of us. And so we're going to go back to Titus chapter one today and look at verses 10 through 16 the verses that Peter just read for us. Thank you, Peter, for reading God's Word to us. We're going to look at those next week, and so maybe we'll have Peter back up here to read them again yeah. next week. But the one part of the reason I think that this idea that we're going to go back to today is so important especially is because as we come into chapter 2, as you may have noticed as Peter was reading God's Word to us, what we start to see there in chapter 2 is instructions on the kind of life that God calls us to live if we're followers of Jesus. He's telling us there in chapter 2 what our character and our conduct should look like if we call ourselves Christians and if we believe the gospel. And those are powerful words, but they're also very piercing words. They're convicting words. Maybe you felt the, the, the awkward, um, uh, piercing power of them even as they were read in your hearing just a few moments ago. They're words that can lead us to evaluate how we're living, to evaluate our habits to evaluate, evaluate our tendencies, um, our, our focus in life, and, and ask, is my life, is the way that I'm living lining up with the gospel that I believe? And, and as we do that reevaluating of our lives, we're likely to see that there are ways that our lives are not lining up with the gospel. I think every one of us, if we humbly come before God's word in Titus 2 and we ask God to to show us ourselves, we're going to see there are ways in which my life is not lining up with the gospel that I believe. Perhaps God has already been showing some of that to you over the past few weeks. And here's the thing, one possible reaction to that is to start to think, I need to do better. I see the, the misalignment between the way that I carry out my days, the things that I focus on, the things that I'm chasing, the way that I act, the way that I talk, I see a misalignment between that and the gospel of Jesus Christ that I believe. And so I got to do better. I'm disappointing myself. I'm a disappointment to others. I got to be a better parent. I got to be a better husband. I got to be a better father. Man, I got to be a better Christian. And, And what can happen next is that that can lead us to, to so desire change that we start to focus on, on behavioral change by any means necessary. Like, i got to find a way to be better and do better no matter what it takes. And we start to forget that it's actually, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 1 of Titus, it's truth that leads to godliness. That is, it's the gospel that motivates us towards godliness, and it's the gospel that empowers change. You see, it's the gospel that motivates, and it's meant to motivate, and it's only the gospel that can empower people to start looking and living like Jesus. And that's what it means to be godly, to look and live like Jesus. It's to be a Jesus-y person. That's what it means to be godly. And only the gospel can motivate us in a healthy way towards that and empower us To actually grow it towards Jesus likeness. Guilt can't do that. Shame doesn't have the power to do that. Shame can motivate us for a little while, but not in a healthy way, and it'll peter out. And it doesn't, shame doesn't have the power to make us more godly. Neither does guilt. Feeling disappointed with yourself. Doesn't have the power to lead you towards godliness. Fearing disappointing others doesn't have the power to lead you towards godliness. And that distinction matters. It matters because we, when we start to aim for godliness and we want to be more like Jesus and we want to live up to the standard that God gives us in His Word, but we do that motivated solely by guilt or by shame or by disappointment in ourselves or simply because we want to live up to the standards of other people so that they accept us and they and they respect us what ends up happening is we short circuit the process altogether we don't get to godliness that way we short circuit the process and and what ends up what we end up with is not godliness at all but we end up with something warped and sad and useless that just looks a little bit like godliness to the untrained eye When we seek to be like Jesus, but the motivation and the power is not coming from the gospel, we don't end up with godliness at all. What we end up with is something warped and sad and useless. That's what Paul says. We're going to see it. And in fact, that's that's partially the problem that was happening in the churches that Paul addresses here in his letter to Titus. So let's go back to Titus chapter 1 verses 10 to 16. And we'll look at some of these verses up here, but I encourage you, if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible on your device, to open it up so you can look at it directly, see if what I'm saying makes sense, see if what I'm saying is true or not, if it doesn't line up with what God is saying in his word. So Titus chapter one, verses 10 to 16. Paul is writing to his partner Titus, who he left in charge of caring for a network of churches on the island of Crete. Paul had just finished, in this letter, he's just finished telling Titus, his old friend, that it's important to appoint Godly leaders. He's saying appoint godly leaders in these churches. That's what he says in verse nine. He says, and it's important that these godly men, these are these leaders, these elders. They need to look like Jesus and live like Jesus, not perfectly, but increasingly. And he says in verse nine, they need to be men who hold firm to the trustworthy word that was taught. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word that was taught, and that. That trustworthy word there, that's a reference to the gospel. That word equals the gospel. And I've used the term gospel a few times. Let me explain. The gospel is the the wonderful news of God's plan to rescue this broken, sin-cursed world by sending his son into this world so that whoever believes in his son, who, who, who entrusts their lives to his son, who died, was buried, and was resurrected from the grave, will find forgiveness and will be granted eternal life. All because God loves us. He puts this plan to rescue this broken, sin-cursed world and rescue every person who puts their faith in the, the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He puts this plan into effect because he loves us. And he wants to give us forgiveness. And he wants to rescue us from the curse of sin. And he wants to rescue us from death. And this plan also involves future reality. This Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to make all things new. And he's going to rule over this world. And when we look around in that newly created world, what we're going to see is peace and we're going to see justice and we're going to see righteousness. And what we're not going to see is injustice and sadness and disease, and war, and depression, and mental illness, and anxiety, and death. Everything that is wrong with this world will have come untrue. So he says, the elders who are leading the church must know that gospel and must hold on to that gospel. They they must believe that gospel and hold it firmly. And then he says, here's why that's so important. Here's why it's so important that leaders in the church really believe the gospel. It's because verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Let's stop there for a second. There were people in these churches in Crete who were undermining the truth of the gospel by teaching lies. And among these deceivers and liars who were upsetting families and upsetting the church, there was a group called the Circumcision Party. They were a group of Jewish people who were obsessed in some ways with adhering to Old Testament laws. So it seems that this group, at the the Circumcision Party, Paul calls them, at least, at the very least, they were telling Christians in Crete to obey Aspects of the Old Testament law, the law that Moses gave the people of Israel. They're teaching and forcing Christians to obey aspects of those laws that were already fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Laws that no longer needed to be obeyed. Laws that were no longer required of Christians. So you see what they were doing. They were placing burden, a burden of responsibility, burdens of duty, burdens of of conduct on Christians that God never put on Christians. But they may have also been adding their own codes of conduct. In addition to those Old Testament ceremonial laws, they may have been adding their own laws that they came up with, things that they thought were good ideas, their own spiritual disciplines, Their own codes of conduct. Things that later on in verse 14, Paul is going to call Jewish myths and the commands of people. Jewish myths, right? Not Jewish laws from God, but just myths. Empty ideas and commands that weren't generated by the God who created us, but by people. Unnecessary, useless commands. You see, they were laying rules and laws on these Christians, but, and, they, and in part, perhaps they were doing it because they thought that by doing that, they would ensure that these believers would be kept safe from the influence of the culture, the, the sinful culture outside. There's worldliness outside the church. There, there's what we might call lawlessness outside the church. Everyone's doing what they want to do. We're going to see that in a second in Crete. It was a lawless culture. And so the circumcision party in part says, if we lay these rules on Christians, we will ensure we'll keep them safe from that encroaching worldliness and we'll help them grow into godliness. But Paul begs to differ. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and beasts and lazy gluttons. And basically what Paul's saying is he's quoting a Cretan philosopher and he's saying, look, everyone knows that the Cretan culture is messed up. That, that, and, and this culture was, was making its way into the churches. Paul says in verse 13, he says, look, this testimony is true. It's true. Cretan culture is a mess. The, the, the characteristics of, of, of lying and evil and laziness and gluttony within the the Cretan culture, those were considered virtues. Those are good things. And Paul says that's coming into the church. And so you could see that if all of that's coming into church, you could see why the circumcision party would be, the way that we would say the way that we can push against all that evil and that gluttony and all that stuff is by laying on more laws, more rules. Paul says this as he goes on in verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Hmm. This is what I believe Paul's saying here, New Hope. As these cultural culturally accepted sins are making their way into the church, Paul says the response We must confront that sin, those harmful, ungodly cultural tendencies. We need need to confront them, but we must confront them with the truth of the gospel. That's what's going to lead to sound faith. That's what's going to lead to people living with a a healthy belief in the gospel and a healthy Christ-like life. Paul is saying what I don't want is for us to confront the sinful, culturally accepted practices of the world that are coming into the church, confront those with more laws, more rules, and expect that that's somehow going to fix things. Look, i have slide here. It's a picture of a, a pendulum. I think we all know what a pendulum looks like, right? You've seen it before. Um, when, a, when you swing a pendulum, the, the, the more it swings, the harder it swings in one direction, I think the harder it will swing back into the other direction, right? So pendulums are not known for sitting centered and stable. They're known for swinging wildly from side to side. When we observe sin, as a church, when we observe sin in the world, and we, we start to see the, the, the dangers perhaps that, that we are experiencing as, as those sinful tendencies of the world are encroaching on our lives. We see um, our kids are in danger. We see the temptations that we're facing. We see all the evil out there, so to speak. We start to worry. And so what might we do? We might, in repelling that evil, we start swinging back in the other direction and we say, the way to protect against that it's to have more rules, more laws, higher expectations. It's like, for instance, when a city sees an upsurge in crime, right? An upsurge in lawlessness. Sometimes politicians who want to get elected, they come in on a platform of law and order, right? They say, crime is going up, lawlessness is taking over this city. I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna fix this. How am I gonna fix this? The plan usually isn't moderate. (laughs) The plan usually is, well, I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix this with tougher sentences, more aggressive policing. We're going to slam down on this crime and smother it out. And some of us hear that and we say, that sounds good, but it seems a little simplistic. And I don't know that I've ever seen it work. It's a simple answer, but it's not a wise answer. And so it is with what was going on in Crete. Paul knows that the answer to the upsurge in worldliness in the church is not to swing towards more aggressive policing, tougher penalties, and more laws. Paul wants to warn the churches against that. He's already called out the lawlessness of the Cretans. Now he's saying, I also need to call out the this law-wielding, super-religious circumcision party. He says in verse 15, he says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. See what he's saying? People in the church were saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't eat this. Don't drink that. Make sure you do this and not that, as if that was the solution to the problems of the church. And the things that they were forbidding weren't really the problem. Paul says the problem is really in an impure heart. And laws can't fix an impure heart. He goes on to say in verse 16: they profess to know God. And again, I think he's talking about these, these people from the circumcision party, these highly religious. Lawkeepers and law enforcers, he says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The law-wielding folks aren't any better than the lawless folks, is what he's saying. They're just as dangerous to the church as the worldliness outside. They've got rules and laws they claim are from God, but they're really just myths. They're really just the commands of the people. And they've turned away from truth. For all their law-keeping, none of it is what really leads to what Paul calls good works, godly living. Again, at the risk of belaboring the point, these are not people who are saying, on the one hand, you you can live how you like, throw off all restraint. No, they were strict, religious folks. They were not licentious and lawless. They were what we might call legalists, legalists. If the licentious or the lawless says, live however you want, the legalist says, no, live like this, according to my rules, you must live like this. And if you live like this, you'll find acceptance with God. Meanwhile, the laws, in many cases, aren't even from God. Paul is saying that these religious rules won't enable you to escape the influence of the world Rules won't make you less worldly and they won't make you more godly. And what this shows us, perhaps you've already seen it, is that there's more than one way to depart from the truth. There's more than one way to depart from the truth of the gospel. You can depart from the truth of the gospel and be lost when you say, I will live as I want. God's laws have nothing to say to me. Or you can depart from the truth and be lost in the other direction when you say, I will obey the rules to make myself worthy of God. <laughs> I'll obey these rules so that God loves me. Both of these departing directions are self-seeking. They both can very, be very much about selfish gain. There's a, a, a slide that I put here that kind of just shows this. We've, if you picture a pendulum in the middle, so often we swing towards lawlessness. I'm going to do what I want. And then we start to feel guilty about that. <laughs> we start to feel guilty about our sins. We, we may swing back in the other direction. We say, I gotta do better. I gotta put some rules in place in my life. I gotta start exacting some punishment on myself. Because the, I gotta, I, the, the guilt and the shame are motivating me to be a better man. And then we fail. We get tired. We swing back. We say, "I'm tired of this. I'm just going to live the way I want. I'm tired of the restrictions. I'm tired of trying." And then the guilt and the shame comes back, and we swing back. Paul wants us to stop swinging back and forth. Two things, as we as we, for the rest of our time today, and we'll make this quick. Two things I want us to see about legalism. Well, again, legalism is this idea that if I, if I, if I put rules in place, and I obey those rules, God will love me, he will accept me, and I will grow to be more like Christ. The way forward as a Christian is to have more rules and do better at keeping them. But here's the problem with legalism. I want to give you two problems with legalism. One, legalism places limits on godliness. Legalism places places limits on godliness. How, how, this is, this is what I mean. Laws and rules laws and rules that look as if they are about promoting and protecting godliness, actually what they end up doing is they reduce godliness to an arbitrary set of standards, and it becomes just about ticking off certain boxes. Like as long as I abstain from that, as long as I can check off that box, I'm good with God. Or as long as, I mean for the, for the, the, the circumcision part, as long as I'm circumcised, I can... Check that off. I'm godly now. But can't one be circumcised on the one hand and still be a lying glutton on the other hand, or being godly becomes being godly becomes a matter of just obeying a certain set of preferred rules. It reduces godliness down to something that we can attain on our own. If we just try hard enough so I can convince myself that I'm godly just because I listen to Christian music and stop listening to the other music I used to listen to or just because I pray or go to church, even though I cheat on my taxes and just like everyone else or whatever, and because I, or, or because I don't touch alcohol, I, I, can, I, can, I can call myself godly even though I'm abusive towards my spouse. Or because I go to church occasionally, I can consider myself godly. I'm fine with God, even though I don't love my neighbor and I don't care for the needs of any poor people that I know. A a legalist mindset will always lead us to pick and choose, to identify certain rules that matter to us and pride ourselves on keeping them. When godliness, real godliness, being like Jesus is broader and bigger than that. And the irony is this, when, when we react against some aspect of our culture, like when the church looks out at the world and sees whatever, whether it's sexual promiscuity or, 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 or crime or any kind of behavior that, that the Bible tells us is wrong, when we react strongly against our culture, there's always this possibility that we might end up just setting up rules to protect ourselves from the culture But in the process, we start ignoring other ungodly aspects of the same culture. This is what I mean. We limit the demands of godliness. We reduce godliness to just becoming a little bit less like our culture in a few ways. For example, I go to church. The world doesn't go to church, but I do. But I live a selfish, self-centered life that ignores the needs of others, including the poor. Isn't that worldly too? (laughs) Isn't living selfishly and self-centeredly and ignoring the needs of the poor pretty worldly too? (laughs) We end up minimizing and diluting godliness down to a convenient set of rules that suit us. Like reading the Bible every day or sharing the gospel at least once a week or volunteering at church. Those are all great things, by the way. Wonderful things, but we must not make them the measure of our godliness and therefore limit godliness down to that. The God who gave us everything at great cost to himself, he wants us to give, give him our whole lives. So first, legalism limits godliness. Reduces it down to something easy to attain. But secondly and lastly, legalism has no power to change our lives. Legalism has no power to change anyone. We see this all the time, I believe, but it's, it's harder to, to see it in ourselves. I think it's easier to see it in other people. Um, I've known strict religious people who treat their family terribly. <laughs> Maybe you've seen that too. I've seen people that abstain from anything that might look worldly like alcohol or or. Uh, certain kinds of entertainment. They may scrupulously abstain from all those things. But they're greedy and, and can't be trusted. Dishonest. And what it shows us is that what it shows us is that the more we focus on rule keeping, the more we'll start to see that that we're powerless. We're powerless to actually transform our hearts. That rule-keeping, I should say, is powerless to transform our hearts. Growth and transformation towards godliness isn't a matter of, of pinning up a set of rules, reading them, and then keeping them. Because our hearts are too sinful for that. We can't manage to produce godliness that way. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2 It's not up here, but the Apostle Paul says that when when we start lining up extra-biblical rules for ourselves, when we say uh, being godly is about uh, don't do this, don't do that, don't touch this, don't touch that, he says what you end up with may have, quote, an appearance of wisdom, but it will lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences, indulgence. In other words, strictly policing your outward behavior has no power to change the inward dynamics of your heart. You see, the only real fuel for growth and change towards godliness is the gospel of grace. So I have another slide up here, I think, where I just took we got lawlessness and legalism. This is where, God, where if you picture a pendulum swinging back and forth between the two L's, we just keep taking L's as we swing back and forth. The Apostle Paul wants us to settle and stand firm on the gospel of grace. And there find a trajectory towards real godliness. The only fuel for growth and change towards godliness is the gospel of grace. The only fuel for growth towards Jesus-like character and conduct is the gospel. In other words, legalism is, 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 an, is no substitute fuel. It's the wrong fuel. It's like putting diesel into a gas engine, which happened to me once. uh, It was was an unfortunate accident, but someone someone used my car, and they were so kind to to, to fill up the tank when they returned it to me, but they accidentally, and I know that the mechanism is set up so this isn't supposed to happen, but somehow it happened. They accidentally um, filled my tank with diesel. It was a gasoline engine. And so that car made it home that night, but when I went to start it up the next morning, it would not start up. I had to get it towed, and I was informed by my mechanic that I had put the wrong fuel in my car, to which I replied, it wasn't me. I don't think he believed me, though. (laughs) The fact is, the car stopped running. That's the point. The diesel doesn't work. The fuel doesn't work because the engine was not designed to receive that fuel and to operate. In fact, that fuel will destroy and stall out the engine. Legalism does not work because it cannot work. It will not lead to a slightly less godly life. No, it will lead to an ungodly, broken, useless life. That's why in verse 16 of chapter 1, Apostle Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. See, the legalist says, I'm doing what God wants, but in reality, their lives deny them. Their their lives are not filled with good works. They're not functioning as Christ-like people. They've persuaded themselves that they're doing the right thing, but their lives give them away. They are not fit for the purpose of doing good. What Paul wants for the church, what he wants for us, what God wants for us, is a gospel-driven godliness, which is the only real kind of godliness. Gospel-fueled godliness. Instead of trying to be like Jesus and do better based on self-will, self-righteousness, guilt, shame. Paul wants godly people who do good works not in an effort to earn God's love or quiet their own guilty consciences but in response to the grace that they've received, and the surprising truth is that the legalistic teachers—they were producing the opposite. What they were producing was God-denying godlessness. That's what legalism always produces, because it limits godliness and it does not provide the power to obey the laws that it sets. So it leads to something that might look godly on the surface, but it's counterfeit. In 1 Timothy 3, 5, Paul puts it this way. He says that legalism leads to those who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. That is, they have the appearance of godliness, but there's no power. It's fake. The engine is stalled out. Because it's got the wrong fuel in it, and it's not going to run again until you get that fuel out and replace it with gospel fuel. In fact, Paul goes on to say, avoid such people, which is kind of scary. He says, avoid such people, because that's dangerous. That kind of legalistic living is so dangerous, it's contagious. You can easily start living that way, too, so avoid that. I want to end with a word of of, uh, application. Maybe consider this a takeaway. When we see that we're not measuring up to what God desires of us, when we start to see that aspects of our life do not align with what we say we believe, we can grow very disappointed in ourselves. Like I said, we start to feel that conviction, and and perhaps it's the Spirit himself, Holy Spirit convicting us, showing us, I want more for you. But we take that and we start to think, I need to do better. I'm so ashamed. I messed up again, I'm falling short, I thought I'd be a better dad, I thought I'd be a better husband, I thought I'd be a better Christian. And so we put rules in place, and measures in place. We punish ourselves. We beat up our consciences. And the rules we put in place might be fine, but what we have to ask ourselves is, is what's the motivation for change here? Where's the power for change coming from? Because more laws are not going to do it. More rules won't do it. More shame and guilt won't do it. And you know that because you've experienced it. That's why we swing back and forth on that pendulum. We can sometimes approach other people this way too. We want to see change in the people that we love. And so we say, if I give this person more laws, this person in my family or in my workplace, or maybe it's my kids, if I put more laws on them, more rules, increase the expectations, increase the punishment, police more aggressively, they will grow in godliness. And Paul say, no, it's the wrong fuel. It's the wrong fuel. Some of us have grown so used to the fuel of legalism that we fail to notice that it's not driving us towards godliness. I told you my gas tank was filled with diesel and In order to fix it, it needed to be flushed out. It needed to be cleaned and replaced, and and that fuel needs to be replaced. and, And that's what we need. We need that fuel of legalism to be flushed out, cleansed out, and replaced. How do we do that? I believe that in part we do that through constant exposure to the gospel. That's why we need the Bible. That's why reading our Bibles is important. It's not because the legalists would say, read your Bible every day and God will be happy with you. Read your Bible every day and you will prove to other people that you're a good Christian. God's saying, read your Bible every day because you need the gospel fuel that's packed into the words of this book to replace all that fake fuel of shame and guilt and law keeping. That's why come to church is important That's why living in community, whether it's in a discipleship group or a care group or organically in community with other Christians, that's why community matters because it's within community that other people remind us of the gospel. They tell us, they give us gospel fuel, and we get to give them gospel fuel as we remind to them, as we preach to one another and to ourselves. We don't need all those things like coming to church on Sunday and, and DGs and CGs and, and Bible reading and praying. We don't need all those things as, as rules to keep, but because they're designed to keep filling us up with gospel fuel. That's why we need them. And here's what else we need to do. One thing we need to do, constant exposure to the gospel. We keep telling it to ourselves, reading it, communicating it to others, singing it. But then here's the second and last thing we need to do. We need to start paying attention to what kind of fuel we're putting into ourselves. I told you before about what happened in my car ever since that mishap. You know what's happened ever since that mishap? I pay a lot more attention to the fuel at the fuel pump. I used to mindlessly just walk up and take the thing and press. I always buy the cheapest gas, and I put it in. But now, you know how sometimes these pumps, and this is what led to the whole problem, sometimes these pumps have a diesel nozzle on one end, the gasoline nozzle on the other. And I used to just instinctively know to grab the right one. But now I go up there and I look and I do a double check. And I say, no, not today. I'm not putting that diesel in here. Not today, Satan. You're not going to get me. Right? So I, 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 it's become an actual, like, discipline, but a, a very habitual and natural thing to look twice and be like, I'm buying the low-octane gasoline because I'm too cheap for the premium gospel is premium gasoline in this metaphor, but it comes free, and the prices don't fluctuate. But here's what we need to do. We need to pay attention to, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of fuel am I putting in here? Here's what I mean. When we're motivated to change something about ourselves, right, you notice yourself drifting. You notice yourself sinning. You see something in your character, your conduct, that's not like Christ, and it bothers you someone else points it out, maybe. And you want change. Praise be to God that you want change. But you need to ask in that moment, what's going to fuel change here? Because naturally and subconsciously and without thinking, I can start using the wrong fuel. So I need to ask, what fuel am I running off of? Am I going to run off of? Am I just going to use the fuel of, of disappointment? God's disappointed with me. I want to make them happy with me. I better do better. Or I looked bad in that situation. I came out looking terrible. I want to look better. So I better work harder. I disappointed myself. I messed up my reputation with my neighbors or with my colleagues because of my sin. I want to do better and impress them. That's all diesel fuel. That's all the wrong fuel. I'm ashamed. Or or what what we need to think instead is gospel, gospel, gospel. Driven godliness, which is, which is Jesus died for this sin. And he's told me that if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so I confess it to him and I'm cleansed. He took this sin to the cross. Suffered for it, why would I continue in it? I'm, I'm accepted as a child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. So why am I trying to find acceptance from others? Jesus offers me eternal life. Why am I trying to find satisfaction in this addictive behavior or that addictive behavior? Jesus said that he bought me with a price and that my body does not belong to me. That's why I want to avoid sexual immorality. Not because I got caught or I'm going to mess up my life if I continue down this road. Those are okay motives, I guess. But gospel fuel says, no, you don't belong to yourself. Your body belongs to Jesus. So flee sexual immorality and pursue purity in Jesus' name. That's gospel fuel. The other stuff doesn't work. In fact, it destroys and it leaves us useless, unfit for any good work. So when we experience that conviction and we want to change and we want to grow, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back back to the beginning of the truth, that truth that leads to godliness, Paul says, that grace that trains us into godliness. The truth, as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 5, that Jesus saved us, not because of righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy. It's all grace. You know, we saw this last week, but the Apostle Paul says that when people are departing from the truth of the gospel, it's the, the job of elders and really, by extension, the job of all of us in the church to rebuke one another sharply. And it sounds very negative. Rebuke one another sharply. Get them back on track. I'm more and more convinced that rebuking one another sharply and rebuking ourselves sharply means reminding one another of the gospel again and again and again. And saying, why are you, why, give me that fuel nozzle. Why are you putting this stuff in your life? Why are you fueling yourself with this bogus, useless fuel that's only poisoning the system of your life? So I want to urgently, directly point you at the gospel fuel and say, use this. Sharply rebuking each other doesn't mean saying, stop that, do better. No, it starts with restating the gospel to one another reminding one another of what Christ has done for us, and reminding ourselves too. That's how we can ensure that we will be of sound faith and that we will grow to be more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we confess to you that we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to wander from your truth, whether it's towards lawlessness or towards legalism. Stabilize us. Plant us with deep, strong roots in the soil of your gospel. And we pray that all the fuel we get, all the nourishment we get, all the energy and power we get and motivation we get to grow and be better as Christians would come from your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.